right. I am so excited to be here. This is a panel discussion on Maori sovereignty. Um, and I have three uh, incredible guests. I have uh, Simon Barber, uh, Maori sociology lecturer at the University of Otago. Otago? Otago. 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 Yeah. Otago. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, and I have Gabriella Brain, a Maori and Samoan undergraduate law student at the University of Auckland. And I have Arama Rata, a Maori independent researcher. So the story of this panel is I invited Arama to come and I've and and when you invite Arama, apparently you don't just get Arama, you get a whole panel. So I have this uh, preformed, incredible panel. And what I'm going to do, what we're going to do here is uh, there's a text by these three authors, um, Arama, Gabriella, and Simon, called Maori Sovereignty or Death. And the text is a discussion, is itself a discussion, uh, taking off from a, a previous uh, text, a collection of essays that I also read for this in preparation for the show, um, called uh, Maori Sovereignty, a 1984 book uh, by Donna Awater. Awater. Awater or? Awateri. Awateri, sorry. Okay, so by Donna Awateri. So um, we're going to talk about both the text, Maori Sovereignty or Death, and the 1984 book by Awatere, uh, Maori Sovereignty, uh, today. And the thing is that, that you guys, you have this jumping off point in your text, which is uh, about like something that if a lot of listeners to the show are in Canada, not all, actually the majority of them are in the US, uh, believe it or not, but there's a plurality in Canada and a lot of us followed the story of the convoy, the trucker convoy uh, last winter. And the trucker convoy, which was against um, vaccine mandates, but then like kind of became a, a bigger thing. <laughs> um, and it became a bigger thing in Canada. They kind of hung out in Ottawa for a good long time and their demands and politics kept kind of expanding um, in a kind of incoherent, but I think fairly right-wing direction, ultimately. Um, and it turns out New Zealand had a convoy as well, and their vaccine mandate was the proximate reason. And it was actually started with online discussion in Canada. Uh, and so people took it up and said, hey, we should do the same thing. Um, so Yeah, thanks I, for that. <laughs> yeah, right. You're welcome. Not, not your best uh, export, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, right. What about like softwood lumber, maple syrup or something? Um, okay, so, so yeah, t can you guys just tell us about that a little bit to start? Yeah, so I guess here we'd had quite a strict lockdown and then um, quite a quite a severe punishment regime for people who didn't get vaccinated. So there was, um, I guess, a lot of, um, there were a lot of distressed people um, out there. And so when this idea of a trucker convoy started being discussed, it really, really quickly developed momentum. Um, and then it, as it moved down the country towards the capital, uh, kind of got co-opted by um, people with far-right agenda. Um, yeah, so it, it all happened really quickly and the left were kind of scratching their heads trying to work 
work out what was happening. And um, yeah. yeah, so it was actually quite helpful to have some of the analysis of it coming out of <laughs> right. out of Ottawa because we were able to um, kind of see some of those those dynamics. But right. I think it was a lot messier in terms of there being lots and lots of different factions of people there, um, not just kind of far-right people at all. Um, a lot yeah. of like Māori healers went down because they didn't believe in like Western medicine. Yeah, um, yeah just such a diverse range of people were, were down there. None of them, um, well, you know, many of the people there didn't really believe the uh, the press or those of us who are trying to say you can't be at a protest next to these other groups who are yeah. blatant white supremacists and stuff so it was quite a um quite a difficult uh phenomenon for the left to get their heads around um yeah. and I really enjoyed reading Jay Sakai's The Shock of Recognition that kind of really helped me understand it I don't know if you've read that but yeah it's really really great um just in the fact that a lot of people here were kind of trying to dismiss it as being just, oh, that's just um, reactionary because the left is rising because capitalism is in crisis. Well, that might all, all be true, but it kind of skims over the the real and genuine hurt and hardship that some people are facing yeah. that would draw them into a movement when, you know, uh, bourgeois leftist politics are not serving their needs. Um, so, yeah, that was helpful to understand some of those dynamics. Yeah, that's... Um... It's very similar. And, and I mean, it's like the 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 self-discrediting of a lot of the establishment on the issue where it's like, you know, this we we don't support people to uh you know to take public health measures. We don't do like in Canada, I think I I don't know much about what it was like in New Zealand, but like in Canada, it's like there's very little of like, oh, we're going to build some new capacity in our health system, or like, we're going to really, you know, address some of these measures uh, by investing in public health. It's much more like we're going to punish people for not, uh, you know, doing this. And like, we're going to call people really stupid for not believing the pretty inadequate um, and like contradictory information that was coming out. So uh but then on the other hand, <laughs> like there isn't a left-right alliance that's going to work out well. <laughs> like that's not a thing that ever works out well. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, in, in Canada, there was like, I, I, you got, you, you also said, I don't know, you also sent me some stuff on like some news items on like what it was like. Um, and I was watching the, the, the day they cleared out the protests um, it started with like a bunch of police without any armament or anything, just kind of going in in some numbers, which was much more relaxed than Ottawa. It um, the Ottawa press in the sense of like I don't remember seeing a bunch of police without weapons here. And then and then by the afternoon, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, this is more like what I've seen. And actually, it was like even more intense. I think uh, in terms of like the police violence and repression um, and confrontation uh, with protesters. I think it was even a little more intense because there was a, in Canada, there was like a big, in Ottawa, there was like a big, like, if they come, we're going to fight them kind of thing messaging from the truckers. Mm -hmm. But when it actually happened, that's not how it really went, went down. Uh, so yeah, it was hard yeah. to respond to over here because uh, it was so big and you know anti-fascists were 
um, just worried that what would end up happening would be the brown people on both sides being pushed to the front and getting into a scrap. So um, they didn't want to confront um, that big of a of a protest because what happens when they actually arrive down at Parliament, they set up camps and they camped there and they. Um, it, we still haven't really figured out how it was funded. So um, there was, you know, lots of food available and stuff. Some people suggested even that some of the money that was collected in Canada may have found its way <laughs> probably <laughs> to New Zealand. Um, and one of our investigative journalists, uh, Nikki Hager, he he's revealed that there were people who were like flowing down, you know, people he described as being down and out who were flowing down or given hired vehicles and, and, and um, were able to stay in hotels, but we, we haven't figured out, I don't think who funded that yet. Um, but yeah, so it was interesting. They were down there for a long time. There were a few attempts by the police to kind of move people. Um, but there was a real reluctance to to use force. Even they wanted to clear some cars away, but some tow truck drivers didn't even want to get involved because they were worried about mm. um, violent reprisals. And so it was interesting because we started to hear people on the left even calling for the police to move in and clear them, which is oh. so bizarre. So it kind of just like threw everyone's compass off. And um, yeah. so then on the final day when they actually cleared people, it was it was just, it was so bizarre to actually be in a position where you wanted that protest to be over, but mm-hmm. it's still awful to see that level of violence. So, th- yeah, there was um, rubber bullets used. I mean, this type of thing doesn't happen a lot in New Zealand, so this was a huge yeah. deal for us. Um, they used those acoustic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, they started fires. The protesters started some fires, and so then the the fire hoses ended up being used on the protesters. Oh, wow. And so it was just a, it was carnage and uh, really awful to see. And we haven't seen that kind of police on protest type of violence. And, you know, the politics of this, of the the 1980s anti-Springbok tour was very different, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen that kind of level of police public violence and, since that time. Yeah, I mean, it, around here it does happen. <laughs> For us, <laughs> it was like, you know... I- Oh, I haven't seen this since. And, and there was a comparison with like the pipeline, like there's all these pipeline protests uh, all over mm-hmm. North America uh, and the police are pretty, pretty violent. Mm-hmm. And especially since it's like, yeah. there's not very much, um, you know, there's, a, a, it's in a rural area. The police have much more impunity, less cameras around and and that kind of thing. So there is, uh, it was a little out of the way, but there was, there were elements <clears throat> Again, just based on the news item that you sent me, it was interesting because it's like when I my analysis of what happened in Canada was like the protesters, the truckers very much had the police on their side. So it was a it, it was kind of a joint operation, I thought, of like the police and the and the truckers. And uh, and so it just seemed like that wasn't the case as much uh in in New Zealand um yeah um our our police has a very similar history obviously yeah. to your yeah. your police force so it started out as a militia that was there to drive Māori off their land yeah. um and yet for some reason um our relationship I think um on on the left especially the kind of younger leftists have a bit of a different relationship with the police it seems like there seems to be an expectation that the police will turn up and and do what you're calling on them to do um, mm. from, from from our younger <laughs> protesters. Um, oh, the police have <laughs> have have trained them well. <laughs> They've taught them, yeah. 
Yeah, we did back in 2007, we had um, really aggressive um, police action against um, uh, against activists. And so that generation are very cautious and, you know, they're security conscious. Um, but I, I think, yeah, newer leftist activists still think it's okay to call the police, for example. Um, and yeah, that 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 whole... Uh, that whole idea of of fascist groups being full of police, we we just haven't quite got our heads around the fact that the police are fascists yet. Um, but but yeah. I did see that the response from the state was a lot stronger in Canada because you, you had a yeah. law passed. Um, nothing nothing like that happened. It was quite a kind of soft touch from the state in terms of how these protesters were dealt with. And of course, a lot of activists were saying, "Man, if that was us, the the outcome would have been so different." Yeah. Yeah. No, but it, yeah, and I mean the thing, the reason the state it was it was a curious thing because the the jurisdictions, the way that the jurisdictions work, um, Ottawa is in Ontario, so it's like sort of the provincial police and the city police jurisdiction, mm-hmm. but of course, Ottawa is the seat of the federal government, uh, and their target was the federal, the protesters' target was the federal government, but the provincial and city police didn't really want to do anything. So the federal government didn't have that, like, so they started doing things they could do, which included, like, changing the law and, and going after them financially. And and then the people, I, I don't really think, I think the trucker protest would still be going on, except that the people in Ottawa got really sick of them. They kind of wore out their welcome with the people in the city and the people in the city started to harass them and and kick them out and like uh, threaten their trucks and stuff. And then the police were like, no, 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 we can move them out. We can move them out. We can. uh, So it was it was sort of like a fear of people taking it out of the initiative, out of the police hands, whereas it doesn't seem to have gone like that. In... Yeah, one one other thing to say on that is just um, you're you're quite often making fun of Canada for copying really bad ideas from the US, but not even being able to get those right. Yes. Well, we do that to Canada, so <laughs> so we wanted it to oh, be a no. convoy. <laughs> It's like we how wanted... you take a photocopy of a photocopy. It's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, gosh. Yeah, I keep going. Yeah, so ours was supposed to be a trucker convoy, but we couldn't attract enough truckers. So it, ended up being a, a... <laughs> so it was a freedom convoy instead. Yeah. Well, the trucker, I mean, again, it's interesting because the reason they were able to get truckers it, to do this was because truckers are like owner operators, right? Like the drivers, the truck drivers in Canada didn't support it because they're like, yeah. um, you know, they're usually like from South Asia or Central Asia or like, mm-hmm. you know, different. They, so they're not, they're not into like this white freedom exactly. Like it's a little different. <laughs> it's like a different idea for them, but it's not like me and my property and my truck and like my road, right? <laughs> So I don't know. I, I it's interesting because the truckers are not working class, like they're owner operator. Mm. So it makes sense that you might not have been able to find too many of those people, depending on the political economy of trucking <laughs> where where you live. Yeah. We definitely did have lots of like, you know, tradies um that yeah. were part of that. Yep. Um, okay, so your tag, so just to to go back to your text, because you kind of opened with this. Um, like it's this connection between these things that happened and like 
and then and then this 1984 text about Maori sovereignty. So like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to like, let you guys make that connection. Because, uh, you know, how did how do you, how do you go from, from an analysis of this protest, this kind of like, incoherent protest to like this protest is actually a sign of the importance of indigenous sovereignty yeah so actually prior to the uh the parliament protest as it's called these days um there were a few other protests that had like QAnon elements that had yeah just conspiracy theory and 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 one of the things that we noticed was our sovereignty flag flying in these protests next to pro-Trump signage. And that was kind of a moment where we were just like, well, something's happening here that we don't quite have our finger on. Um, and so that's when we kind of kicked into gear and, and started to try to understand what was happening there. Um, and then when this uh, parliament protest occurred, we didn't have to wonder anymore because it was all just very, very visible. But I guess a lot of the, the the research that we've seen recently hasn't dealt with these issues and it, it kind of like you had to go back to Donna Awatiti's 1984 article, uh, book to understand some of these dynamics. But it's rooted in a much deeper history, of course. Yeah, the, perfect. The, let's go back then to that essay and um, to, to that book because um, the book is like, I I I thought the that Donna Awatere's book was amazing. Like it was so so refreshing. Like it's just such a really <laughs> you know like she's just so exactly. frank about everything. Um, and so the first uh, essay in it is is from 1982, and it's called The Death Machine, and it's basically like a, a analysis of how colonialism works. Um, and again, like I'm always struck by differences between. Co- you know, subtle differences, because it's a very similar process. But like, Canada has all these treaties, and they're each one kind of exploitative, where the state makes a treaty with an individual, you know, First Nation. And, uh, and then they obviously don't fulfill (laughs) the treaty, and they like, claim the land. Um, And, uh, and in, in New Zealand, it's like, there's one big treaty, um, but in the same way as like in Canada, like the indigenous people never surrendered. So like, there's a lot of analysis where, you know, um, indigenous first nations are like, we did not surrender the land. The treaty does not constitute a se- surrender. There's no surrender. <laughs> and, uh, and that's like another, that's a big theme that, that, um, Donna Awatere takes up in, in the book. So I, I, you know, let's talk about the death machine, uh, you know. Yes, we could um, begin by sort of um, historicizing um, colonization here a little bit. And I think that um, the figure we, we kind of begin with, or the, the uh, sort of absentee founding father of, of New Zealand is, is the head of a kind of a joint stock company. That's a capitalist kind of venture called the New Zealand Company. Um, his name's Edward Gibbon Wakefield. He's a pretty um, interesting sort of character, reasonably kind of delusional sort of guy. Uh, he's been been marginalized kind of from the history of of political economy, but in his own period he was he was uh, much more um, 
had much more influence than some of the other names that have come to to dominate. He converts the kind of Benthamites and things in the uh, in the period. So I can can argue he's, he's Marx himself argues that he's he's much more sort of honest than than a lot of the other bourgeois political economists. He sort of um, says tells it like it is. Uh, he's less less sort of keen to to obfuscate, and uh, he. He's all his kind of writings and arguments are either like he's made up a kind of persona, a colonist who's in Australia when he's not actually there, or he argues with these kind of straw uh, straw men that he, he flamboyantly wins these kind of arguments. But um, his sort of first get rich quick scheme is to uh, kidnap uh, underage Arius, uh, take her up um, to Gretna Green, and try and sort of force a marriage so that he will be. Uh, inherit her fortune. Um, it doesn't work. He gets sent to prison. Um, and prison in the period is a kind of uh, informal uh, university about the coloni about colonization because it's where a lot of people that are being sent to Australia uh, are sort of um, have either come back or, or on their way there. And this is where he writes his kind of plan about systematic colonization, pretending to be an Australian uh, colonist. And it's this kind of plan that he then uses uh, to win kind of influence and to set up the New Zealand company. Um, his brother, uh, he sends his brother out uh, to purchase the kind of land that's going to be required for, for the settlement. The idea is to, to get land for, for next to nothing, to, to transport kind of British uh, social relations in their entirety. This is the sort of truth Mark sees that he, he comes to that that uh, capitalism is a social relation. So you have to transport these kind of social relations. So land will be kept kind of unavailable. So there will still be um, a, a working class there for, forced to work that land and their transport will be paid by this market and land um, for land that has, has been gotten for next to nothing. This is the plan. So it's a kind of um, process whereby Māori will pay for their own kind of colonization. And this is why it kind of takes on, uh, why it's uh, politically kind of compelling. There's a there's a massive glut of of labour of all the commoners that are being cleared off the land, and they're starting to cause trouble in in England. So it's a sort of multi pronged uh, solution. But the land purchases that his brother uh, thinks he has has made are, are absolutely massive. I think he's he sort of thinks he's he's uh, bought about half the country. In a matter matter of you know um, having not been here for that that many weeks, but these are <clears throat> obviously um, these these kind of purchase agreements don't don't hold up in any way. Māori aren't moving off the land like like the um, they think the Colonel Wakefield thinks they should be, and there's there's settlers arriving, um, and it's these kind of um, the frictions and and uh, struggles uh, by Māori to to kind of maintain their land in this period means the crown kind of intervenes. Um, so the the company sort of um, loses its its control, but that control is taken up by the by the crown. They they largely stick to to Wakefield's kind of plans, except for they're actually uh, even bigger bastards. Kind of they remove some some kind of protections and parts of of the supposed deal that. Wakefield had included, um, such as a tenth of all the purchases would go to um, Māori. Wakefield was interested in producing a kind of um, Māori ruling class, 
so a, a collective ownership or collective authority would be broken down and it would be ownership would of lands these tents would be placed uh in the hands of of an emergent what he wanted to become a maori um, aristocracy <clears throat> but it's um when the crown kind of takes over um that, that move and and this is the 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 occasion of the the signing of um Tetariti, the treaty of waitangi uh, two different documents that say two different things uh, depending what language they're in um unfortunately for for the crown um they're unable to to uh dispossess to take as much land kind of immediately as as they'd hoped for this kind of settler thirst for land um turns into a bunch of um kind of straightforward uh invasions which uh, um perhaps Arama can talk uh more about the the Waikato invasion yeah that that's um just reminds me of you always pointing out that um that quote about British colonialism and coming to acquire half the world through a fit of absence of mind or something uh, yeah. yeah yeah um and oh. yeah so what Simon's describing is is quite rare when it's actually written out as a plan <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> some absent-mindedness right yeah but but it was still very much the case that the British crown um did this whole like performative reluctance to intervene um that they always do and so when all of this was taking place and this corporation was buying up land and you know the British crown was like oh we don't want to go there but out of humanitarian concern for these poor natives we we better go and annex the whole country <laughs> you know um and and yeah so as, as Simon mentioned some of the issues were that the Māori were not leaving off the land that was supposed to be theirs um and so that's where we just we had battles take place from um, within two years of the signing of treaty, uh, the Treaty of Waitangi, and they never really stopped until um, the 1880s. So, yeah, um, and you've covered that quite well, I think, in your Civilization series. So going th from skirmishes to with militias, local militias, uh, or local fascists, uh, if you want to uh, use Cezia's word for them, uh, to imperial war. And I'd be really interested to see how the events in 1857 in India might have impacted our history here because by the late 1860s, the Crown were no longer willing to send imperial troops. So the the battle then turned to like guerrilla warfare and then passive resistance. There was demographic swamping taking place as well strategically as a as the quote sole alternative to a war of extermination. Um, and yeah, we had that uh, once once kind of Māori sovereignty was seen to be usurped by the crown. Um, that's when they implemented their white New Zealand policy. So prior to that, as long as you weren't Māori, you were welcome. Um, but once they'd shored up sovereignty, they then closed the door on quote, racialized aliens. Um, and that was in 1881, which I think might have been the year before the acts were passed in, in Canada to restrict racialized people there as well. So, you know, these histories are very closely aligned. Yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act. There mm -hmm. was a specific Chinese Exclusion Act. I think it was 1884, I want to say, or five. But yeah, I mean, yeah, ours was Those... uh, the Chinese, yeah, they had a very similar name, I think Chinese Immigration Act or something like that, poll taxes, um, yeah. limiting numbers per tonnage of ships, these types of things. 
language criteria yeah uh-huh. um so and that uh, yeah there's oh there's a question in for that that i wanted to ask you guys about uh Awatere's text she says um she says a, the the roots of this deficiency like a deficiency of um identity like the whole identity being anti-maori basically and mm-hmm. like she says you know it's this is a racial past based on direct obsessive ties with britain which have not to this day been severed so is would you say that like there's still an obsessive an obsession with britain or is it like more american <laughs> or like because here canada is like we don't know whether to be obsessed with Britain or America, but like for the most part, Canada's chosen the USA. Like it's like yeah, we're so, be the um, USA. Donna Awatiri recently did like a 40th anniversary cordial about this text. And that was one thing she returned to. And she said, those ties that we have to Britain are not as strong, but she was like, pretty much everything else is still the case, unfortunately. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but what I said, because back, back then when she was writing, people would still refer to England as home. People who had never set foot in England right, right. would still refer to it as home. Um, so that was one aspect that she had seen change a little. Um, but oh, I knew I was going to be able to talk about AUKUS um, with Brexit. <laughs> oh, they're they're yeah. now like trying to sneak back into our DMs kind of thing. You know, that yeah, ex-boyfriend yeah. and you're like, fuck off. Um, yeah. So, yeah, they're trying special, to like. Special relationship. Yeah. 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 Do, a, do a victory lap. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, going to say, too, there's an awful lot of sentimentality at the moment in our media about the bloody coronation, dare I say it. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh t- I really didn't want to mates- bring this up. Like, yeah. nobody needs to be reminded. <laughs> the sword of destiny, your- the stone of uh, the ages, <laughs> the rock of magic. Oh, God. Yeah. Good uh, Ella, can you, tell, can you tell everyone about your mate's um, plug-in thing? Oh yes. Um no, my um my awesome mate, Hamiora Bailey, um, he um works for like an advertising company. And so as part of like their sort of organization, he came up with this idea that um to like it's like a plugin that you download onto your like Google Crown, oh sorry, Google Chrome browser, um, that blocks out all of the kind of like news gossip about the royal family and the coronation oh and replaces it with indigenous news. So if you oh. actually sort of download the extension, nice. you can like see like, I don't know if you're scrolling like through the Guardian or something, literally these black lines will start. <laughs> <yeah>. Redacted, redacted. <laughs> wow, that's a... Like, in, you know, another sort of article will be superimposed over it. It's really cool. I love um, it. I love it. It's a good use of, of programming yeah. chops for sure. <laughs> um, and then, um, but Arama, you also wanted, um, you also wanted us to ask uh, Gabriella about um, Maori sovereignty movements in the 60s, in the 1960s. Oh, did you want to, yeah, just bring us up to date with kind of the movements that sovereignty movement and when that started to kind of kick into gear? Yeah. So, um, I mean, like, Maori resistance to colonization has obviously been a movement since since day one. Um, and but yeah, so like the 1960s in particular were quite instrumental for 
mobilizing um, around like the particular sort of issue of the Treaty of Waitangi. And so you had Natamatoa who were um, sort of creating or um, having all of these protests on Waitangi Day to basically speak about how like the Treaty of Waitangi was a fraud. Um, and there's a lot of like really complicated, uh, well not complicated, but complex debate around it because we talk about the Treaty of Waitangi is an extremely distinct text from Te Tiriti o Waitangi. And um, it all kind of comes down to this whole sort of conversation of sovereignty. And so if you actually look at Te Tiriti o Waitangi um, or what Aotepuna um, signed up to essentially, like sovereignty was never ceded and our tino rangatiratanga um, was meant to be upheld within the constitutional fabric that was envisioned. And so, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think one of the big sort of takeaways for me with Donna Awatere's text is this whole sort of notion that like colonization has not ended. And we also need to be really sort of aware of the insidious ways in which colonization um, sort of changes face a bit or how the crown sort of like kind of co-opts liberal diversity politics, for example, um, but the same kind of like violent colonial power structures remain. And so with all of these like protests that were happening within like the 1960s onwards, um, it was really, really like monumental in um, sort of holding the crown to account for treaty breaches. And so you had the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal and further protests um, since its establishment to really sort of change the kind of conversations that were happening within the space. Um, and because the Waitangi Tribunal is pretty much like a permanent commission of inquiry into crown breaches of the treaty. Um, but it has a really sort of complicated history because um, in the 1980s, pretty much there was this big sort of legal case, which um, instated the treaty principles, which are essentially like a watered oh, no, down really getting um, like legal construct that the Crown now relies upon, which distorts the meaning of Te Tiriti or Waitangi and also the Treaty of Waitangi. And so even though there has been sort of progress in that respect, and a lot of that progress has been driven by grassroots Māori organising for Māori sovereignty, um, I'm also sort of aware of like the interest convergence at play in regards to how a lot of these conversations um, have become co-opted by the Crown. And I think Donna Awatere's text is a really useful um, thing to go back to in terms of mapping um, or critically mapping um, colonisation in Aotearoa um, and the ways that it still exists despite having things like the Waitangi Tribunal to um, address grievances, but also distort the conversation away from like our radical demands for tino rangatiratanga Māori. Mm -hmm. Co-optation yeah. co is also like the theme of, of the next essay in, in uh, Awatere's book, which is like alliances. And that was another one where I was like, very refreshing again, because she's just like, 
we can't it's basically like we can't count on any of these people <laughs> which is like a, a brutal message it's an absolutely brutal message but it's also sort of like the only thing more brutal would be counting on people you can't actually trust right so it's I don't know like was that pessimistic was that dead on like because she she goes through like Pacific Islanders no white women no trade unions no <laughs> the left no we're on our own right so like yeah. what do you where 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 are the, where are we at <laughs> is that is that still the case or like how do we how do we analyze that now there is like a yeah there's definitely a lot of truth to it um and for examining particular components of it such as like the Pakia left and old Simon and Arama explain that further but the section on Pacific alliances for me was really interesting having Whakapapa to, um, to Samoa, but also here in Aotearoa. Um, and again, there's a lot of truth to it. I think it really got me to kind of reflect on the ways in which like imperialist immigration and sort of thinking about New Zealand's colonial rule throughout the Pacific has like really attempted to fragment our ancestral sort of connections through which like is our name for the Pacific Ocean um, and sort of yeah turn that kind of relationship into an allegiance with colonial power structures essentially in order to migrate in order to assimilate um, so there's a lot there to critique but I also think sort of solidarity within Te Moana Nui Akiwa is one of like our only ways forward. And again, in situating the whole sort of history of settler colonialism within New Zealand um, with wider sort of issues of imperialism throughout the Pacific as well. And Ante, you might have more to add to that in terms of orcas and um, revitalizing uh -huh. again because if you actually sort of look at the history of our movements um, you know in terms of like the anti-nuclear Pacific movement in terms of connections between Ngā Tamatoa and the Polynesian Panthers and so on like I'm sure there were definitely conflicts and debates but there were also you know um, aspects of solidarity that were really sort of powerful and propelling a lot of these conversations around colonization and racism. Yeah, and those are such good points that you raise around um, Pacifica being forced to relate to Māori through the Crown's immigration yeah. system, you know, the violence of that. And because we're not, Awatere is critiquing Pacific Islanders as um, communities that are not going to be good allies. She's critiquing their conservatism, she calls it. Um, but but that's due to their precarity. Um, they have to kind of follow the rules here and they don't want to be seen as radical because it's just so easy for the state to, to deport them. Um, and so what we see now, like a couple of generations on, is these, in my view, just like really... Uh, uh, people that have been who've been raised here, who speak the language, who have attained the educate, who've been through the education system, but are still not given access to the spoils of white settlerism, who are angry and 
So there is, I think, potential for alliances there um, now that were different to the period when Awatiri was writing. But Simon, you might be able to um, tell us a bit more about how how relevant Awatiri's critique of the left is today. Yeah, I remember, um, I mean, laughing when I read it because it's uh, both kind of blistering uh, critique and, and still just like fresh seemed immediately kind of recognizable um the critique um you know I look over my shoulder a little bit but the critique of the university left is is kind of you know this this uh flimsy kind of ultra radicalism that, that vanishes as soon as the kind of ink is dry on the on the diploma or whatever um so I think um yeah it's still still reasonably um kind of cogent sort of critique I think um as well as um you know, even uh, can apply to Awatiri yourself a little bit with their own drying ink. But um, the other sort of side of the left, I think that this is, you know, the other kind of option is this um, kind of stodgy uh, Trotskyite kind of very white left in which, uh, um, you know, the Māori um, sovereignty is is always secondary, can only be secondary to this, this struggle against um, capital. It's kind of like you do you do this with us and then after the revolution we'll 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 come and have a look at your problems or whatever so you see um it, it kind of um yeah ignores i think in the the 70s um for maori struggle always understood sort of drawing from from the us from from the black panthers and and elsewhere um this double double form of oppression always a kind of two step of um both of of uh, race and and capital, uh, colonialism and and capitalism sort of uh, intertwined. So, I think for for Awatiri, um, and there's some some reasonably good examples. There's a period of um, uh, uh, radicalism against uh, apartheid South Africa and uh, involved with rugby tours and so on. Or, um, <clears throat> It's when that that kind of finishes that Māori say, well, let's have a look, um, let's have a look back here. And that's when the kind of white radicals, the white left sort of vanishes. They're far more interested in um, uh, fighting this this wrong overseas, as long as it doesn't mean any kind of introspection or, or uh, looking at our situation. And, and that's also a bridge to the the next essay, which is like Beyond the Noble Savage, and there's a lot in that essay, which you guys also take up in your uh, article about like what she calls white culture. And it's like, there's this idea that like, even, I mean, even whatever, like the, the left is no less trapped in white culture as like the, the center or the right. Um, and like, there's a class structure. And I don't know if you wanted to kind of elaborate on that a little bit too. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there's the, the, the sort of title of the section Beyond the Noble Savage kind of points to the this kind of changing or modulating history of, of racialization of, of Māori that has served kind of different purposes at, at different times. Um, there's this, uh, I mean, sort of the beginning of the doctrine of, of discover, discovery or something that, that racializes everyone that isn't... Uh, Christian in Europe as inferior, so you can take their stuff. Um, this kind of um, changes in the earlier, this kind of Wakefieldian period is a more kind of um, Lockean, John Locke kind of argument that um, Māori haven't improved their lands, they don't work them, they're not sort of 
capable of of kind of ownership in in this um sense so so that this property right isn't isn't there um again serves much the same function i think there's there's a kind of settler fantasy for a period where where maori are um racialized as being a very weak kind of race that is dying out the dying race so this is uh, maori will vanish the problem will be dissolved you can just the land will be uh you know settlers <clears throat> i think this this kind of um changes as as uh, maori population sort of rebounds there's a kind of renaissance of of maori culture as well uh, and it's here um where the, the settler state kind of turns to looking at maori as being a, a relatively cheap uh workforce <clears throat> and and it's here this this kind of process of of um racialization works to to hold uh, Māori in the at the kind of bottom of of the labor hierarchy it's really um to to so we can say with someone like Jody Melamed that um capitalism is racial capitalism and that uh, it requires these these inequalities these imbalances in order for it for it to to function and it's race that sort of enshrines uh, these inequalities along the lines of um uh yeah so that it can kind of fix class and race or fix class in place by using the kind of racialization but here i think that's when these these kind of um these uh the white that, that class is kind of uh cut by this vertical line of of kind of race so you see white solidarities um that, that white workers choose choose solidarity racial solidarities over over those of of class okay last question before we get back to your uh article um by you three which is like the 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 strategy that Awatere gets to is something she calls exodus um so it's like or withdrawal so the whole um idea is like we've kind of got to go our own way we can't um fight for uh we can't fight to try to carve out a space in this system like no matter what we do it's it's not gonna it's not gonna fulfill our goal for sovereignty right so um I mean what what, what do you think of that because like it, it's it's definitely a good argument you know it, it has a things to recommend it but you could also imagine you know fighting for sovereignty in a different way like there are there are always different ways so how does exodus like how did you guys understand exodus and like as a strategy less I'll because unfortunately I have to go really all right you soon. get the last you I'll get the first word give us some easter eggs before you have to go <laughs> no nah, this is where I really feel like um oh you're gonna do an exodus of... you're gonna talk <laughs> about exodus and then you're gonna do an exodus from this from this chat beautiful so poetic <laughs> <laughs> nah, um well I think this is really weird um the power of Māori sovereignty comes through as an abolitionist text. And I think this is why it is so refreshing um, as this like incredibly strong reminder for why abolition is our way forward. Mm. And I mean, like abolition, like often when we sort of bring it up in, 
and community conversations, it's it's a pretty sort of full-on term um, and insinuates a lot of kind of destruction. Um, and, you know, necessarily too, it's about literally sort of abolishing colonial power structures in their totality. But in order to reimagine and like envision anew. And I think, yeah, sort of navigating like these colonizing realities and so on, we kind of, um, it's, it's easy at times to kind of lose sight of the visions that our, our tipuna or our ancestors um, sort of had for us. Um, moving into worlds beyond colonization, oh yeah, beyond colonization, beyond capitalism, um, beyond oppression and beyond violence. And yeah. So there. <laughs> That's <Not> me. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nice. You, yeah, you were great thank as always. You. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Yeah, I'll let you guys carry the conversation about necropolitics and stuff like that. I'm excited <laughs> to see where that ends up. That's my big good. passion co-popper, but can yeah. You, you can, you can I'm so sorry. I should have known. <laughs> oh, we were, we, were, we were glad to have you this long, right? What's that? Sorry? We were glad you were here for this long. Oh, took up, yeah. Excited to listen to the rest of, yeah, the second half of it, though. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'll take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you too. Okay. So let's continue. We are we are fewer, but we will we will we will continue. Our heart our hearts will carry on. Um. So um. Yeah. Let's get back to your essay because um. I think we're ready now. We've gone through. <laughs> we've gone through the book. Um, so yeah, we we mentioned at the very top, like there's a connection between Awatere's text, which we now understand, and this this protest. So like you you actually wrote that the the protest and the kind of uprise uptick in like hate crime against Maoris, uh, Maori in demonstrate in your words demonstrate that donna awatere's maori sovereignty is more relevant than ever so that's like that's an interest for me that called my interest because i'm like oh well like you know that's a yeah what, what how do you see that connection and that demonstration yeah it's um <clears throat> i i i hear a lot of discussion of of canada's politeness um we have something similar over here as well but um here it's it's passive aggression, I think. So racism operates in New Zealand through its denial of its existence, um, through performances of innocence and outrage and, and these types of things. Um, but it's to the point where you can't even say anything's racist here because, oh, no, 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 that, you know, everybody's got their own kind of exceptionalism discourse. I think in Canada, it's probably multiculturalism based. Here it's treaty-based uh, exceptionalism. So, oh, no, no, we're not racist because we have the treaty and we don't have races here. We have ethnicities. So you can't even actually call a white person white here because they'll be outraged. They'll say, no, no, I'm a New Zealand European. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that's how that works. Um, and so and so the actually in, around... in Canada, it's impolite to to call people mm. white too, I would say mm. it's like uh, it's it's they they wouldn't say uh, they wouldn't 
not identify it they would they would probably say you know that's ridiculous I'm Italian or like you know that's ridiculous <laughs> I'm I'm Ukrainian uh, you know I'm Ukrainian mm-hmm. Russian or whatever but also um they would also say like how could you bring race into it like you know, <laughs> okay so it sounds sounds really similar about, <laughs> you're making it about race like yeah for sure yeah. it's pretty um there are very few scholars even that deal directly with race here and those that do often send their papers to north america to have them <laughs> yeah. published because if you try to publish them here people go no 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 we don't have racism here yeah. um simon's probably more familiar with that type of um dynamic but um yeah and so so we had these uh, as simon mentioned we were very good at talking about racism if it was south african racism so we we had a bit of a discourse happening there um, but then in the 1990s, we saw the response to this discussion of racism was to then focus on the treaty and doing like mm-hmm. treaty training with people. And um, and the discourse around race kind of just fell away. Um, and yeah, it, it means that there are a lot of people, most people in New Zealand are not actually very good at discussing race or racism. Um, and so when we did see this um, upsurge in racist violence, much of which was not toward Māori, so we, um, you know, I'm sure you would have seen the uh, attacks on the mosques in Christchurch that happened, um, and in the COVID period, lots of anti-Asian racism. So this upsurge, along with a lot of um, more open threats made to different communities so um yeah we've seen a lot of that just much more openly and people were surprised (laughs) they were shocked (laughs) here Um, can that happen here (laughs) yeah exactly um and awatiri's text she talks about you you while it kind of it, it refers to like how george jackson and gabriel rockwell describe liberalism and fascism just being two sides of this the same capitalist coin and the way that Awatiri describes it is that you only have to scratch the surface to find ready fascists and ordinary white New Zealanders um, so when we saw that kind of play out here um, we we actually needed to go back to some of these texts to describe what was happening yeah how about white culture let's talk about that because you you know the, this this thing you just quoted like ordinary white New Zealanders right like that whole idea and like we have we have phrases like old stock Canadians that's mm-hmm. that's one I've heard the former prime minister uh Stephen Harper use this term old stock mm-hmm. Canadians that's a good <laughs> yeah. one I like that one um, so uh, so yeah white culture like what's yeah let's yeah, yeah let's talk about that so and the way that Awatiri talks about white culture, sometimes she's talking very specifically about New Zealand and, and white people here. And in other times she's talking about this uh, millennial culture. So I think she's talking about that sweeping tradition of glorious conquest, um, as we wrote in the paper, that yeah. kind of goes back to the Middle Ages um, and these logics of social hierarchy that yeah. pre-existed and include racial capitalism. Um, and she she picks up on um, the way that white culture is often discussed here. So it's either kind of denied and ignored or it's romanticized. So um, the Maori word for white people is Pākehā. So some people identify as Pākehā. Uh, they're usually more likely to be our allies. <laughs> right. um, those who are not our allies think that it means something derogatory and so um, are also offended if they're called Pākehā. But 
a lot of the, you know, there are lots of academics who have built their careers talking about being Pākehā uh, and their mm-hmm. relations with Māori, as you can imagine, and um, and their understanding of it is though it's this identity that emerges through a relationship with Māori. I take on this term of being Pākehā, I acknowledge that um, this is my place in the world and, and I exist through this relationship with Māori, which is it's nice as an abs- ab- uh, sorry aspirational <laughs> um, identity, I guess. But what Awatiri brings forward is the fact that this culture, white whiteness in this country, is forged through violence against Māori. It's forged yes. in in confrontation with Māori, and it was the settler the desire for land that united them. So before that, they would have been racist towards each other and probably had lots of scraps over in Europe. But when they got here and they fought together to acquire Māori land, they suddenly formed this identity together. And, you know, this goes to the work of people like Eileen Morton Robinson, who talks about whiteness and possession. And um, I love that W.B. Du Bois quote, whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. And that's (laughs) that's what whiteness means here. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The whole earth, right? I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, the... Race denial of race is like you almost it's 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 all it's easy to be sympathetic to it because obviously race is ultimately like a made up thing, it's not a real thing. But like when you think of how much the British imperialists and American race scientists like gloried in white race and like talked about how the white race had the you know duty and responsibility to conquer the whole world and like murder all these inferior races and everything and now they're like no it doesn't exist (laughs) it's like how did you get here then like why is it called new zealand then like why is this town called auckland then like what what do you mean (laughs) so yeah um uh the uh, your so both of your both your text and awatere's text are also about sovereignty so like she you know you guys both have like different so like it's not just that it's like we want the sovereignty that they have right like there's like New Zealand the state and it's like we just want that it's like a different thing right like it's a different sovereignty so like there's like I think the phrase is like white imperial sovereignty and then Maori sovereignty and they're there it's like a different concept so like how do how do you understand like on the one hand, it is there is something in common. It's about power and it's about land. So like it's not just like a our sovereignty is like you know <laughs> a state of mind <laughs> like sovereignty, sovereignty. But it it is also a different notion. So like, how do you think about the those different sides of of sovereignty or different aspects of it? Yeah, I guess um, maybe begin like some of the um the earliest settlers comment on on just how uh, incredibly kind of democratic and um Māori society is. There's uh, all these kind of um, processes and protocols for ensuring kind of um, that power isn't isn't uh, kind of expressed arrogantly or absolutely kind of in these ways, and and mm-hmm. uh, there's a sort of uh, jealousy of the the amount of of freedom that, that Māori have compared to their um, British counterparts. <laughs> yeah, and, but this of course has to be kind of um, 
it has to be uh, kind of covered over because part of the reason you can uh, justify colonization is that Māori are incapable of self-governance. You know, therefore, this is this this kind of white man's burden you were you were just talking about, Justin. So I think um, in terms of, of these competing kind of forms of of, of sovereignty, really, um, Westminster or the, this kind of system based on on a, absolute. Um, absolute control over over a territory like an indivisible kind of sovereignty that, that mm-hmm. uh, has been variously kind of theorized as having a sort of violence at its at its kind of heart this is certainly not um anything that exists uh, in Aotearoa before the arrival of of Europeans it's much more um uh, to do with with connection uh, I think it's probably there's there's a lot of um hapu uh, living um and they, they will have kind of uh, authority over over their areas of inhabitation and, and these kind of things, but there's not um, the, the, a lot of the the kind of um, politics, I guess, that exists prior is about kind of maintaining good relations, maintaining kind of connection, and and so on. Um, and and mana, um, which is the sort of often translated as kind of power, authority, kind of prestige. Um, but but mana can't be expressed by by rangatira, by by leaders um, in breach of of tikanga, the kind of existing um, protocols sort of in in the land that regulate kind of the, the first law, um, as it's been called to to contrast with kind of um, crown law. I think um, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, Gabriella was talking about the. Um, this kind of co-option or capture, but I think there's a there's a real um, kind of danger that in these these struggles for Māori sovereignty now, sort of more um, referred to as constitutional transformation, that there's a kind of capture of of this difference, so that uh, Māori sovereignty comes to look just like its European counterpart, but albeit expressed in a constitutional form. So I think it's it's holding on to to that difference um, that power resides uh, at the the kind of hapu. Uh, finer kind of um, level as well, and the, the different forms of of the kind of expression uh, of that that power. It's less less to do with kind of representation, I guess, and then a kind of a liberal democracy, and more to do with a, a kind of direct expression of of the people's kind of will. Yeah. Well, and then the other uh, the other theme that you talk about with sovereignty at least on the imperial concept of sovereignty is like actual of the the inflicting of death on people right like that's ultimately like where uh sovereignty goes (laughs) right um so uh you know it's it's interesting because like universities here have i don't know if you guys have, have this too but like there's like now there's like equity, diversity, inclusion, but now they're including decolonization. And I think mm-hmm. of like decolonization is like a pretty murderous process. Like it's, you know, like it's not, it's not like, it's not like you decolonize, you know, it's not a matter of like changing the readings of the curriculum, right? Like that's not how Africa <laughs> decolonized. Like it was not anyway. So, you know the the life and death aspects of sovereignty. I don't know whether whether you guys want to take that up at all, because um, it is an important part of the essay, right? Like necropolitics, biopower. 
I'd like to pass it over to Simon to hear what you have <laughs> to say because he he wrote this review of a book called Imagining Decolonization, which kind of you, you began by talking about Fanon, didn't you, Simon? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do it with I've got um, a class I got um, did, did a course within one of my courses on colonization. I teach about uh, I have a lesson on decolonization, and I begin by reading from um, Richard of the Earth just to give the students a sense of what decolonization means it's this absolute break you know there's cannonballs yeah. and things and it's um you know it's this this process uh of of um yeah what well, I, I forget the the last shall be first you know it's this violent he's, he's very clear it's a it's a process of, of violence kind of that he will uh, you know is much more nuanced in the full text they do the kind of bad thing of of ripping these these kind of texts but then um i go to some some tweets um that are about how um, a, a contemporary, uh, I forgot the name, um, Maori um, person. Paul Yeah, yeah, Paul um, It's sort of saying that she's sick to death of decolonization because it's just about um, white people having epiphanies and it's kind of all this labor <laughs> that Maori are doing just to make white people kind of feel better. So just trying to get the sense of this, again, this kind of capture, this drift of, of this term, um, you know, that's... Uh, um elsewhere been been sort of covered you know decolonization is is not a metaphor in in text such such as this but um mm -hmm. yeah i think when Awatiri's kind of notion of the death machine and, and it's a shame uh gabriella's had to leave because um she it was her kind of contribution to cover this stuff i think picking up on mbembe actually mbembe's notion of necropolitics and and the way in which um sovereignty is kind of premised on this extra vulnerability to death of of Māori that we still see um mm -hmm. across all our kind of um you know yeah. all the state institutions um and things there's a lot of quantitative stuff in mm. Awatere's uh book right about like mm. actual higher death rates and you know yeah she assembles a kind of mass of of data as well as this kind of other yeah. text that exists alongside these um historical kind of photographs that she's uncovered the kind of footnotes to to those texts i mean it's a, um, a quite kind of comprehensive case that she builds up and and certainly this this hasn't um hasn't changed um none of none of these kind of statistics have, have improved kind of dramatically or anything so we're still very much inside of this that maria given over to a to a um a heightened vulnerability to state violence and, and death and institutionalization and, and poor health and this sort of stuff so and and the Chile connection, because there's like a whole there's a whole discussion of like Chile's pretty much I think it's safe to say failed constitutional mm -hmm. uh, like attempt to change their constitution, um, and like you know in some ways it was like a populist like right wing campaign to get them to repudiate the the exact progressive parts of the constitution, so. I mean, yeah, I think um, Chile is a really um, uh, interesting kind of point of um, comparison for us here because um, New Zealand, because of the brutal kind of speed of our neoliberal reforms in the, the 80s, um, we were referred to as Chile without the gun. We sort of effectively had this um, coup, but it, it took place within our, our centre-left Labour Party or whatever within a, a group of um, around the guy called Roger Douglas and, and others that had sort of brought neoliberal uh, orthodoxy into the into the Labour Party and just um, 
yeah, inc incredible kind of speed of of those those reforms and stuff. So there's this kind of comparison as well um, as the struggle for what's termed pluri plurinationalism uh, in Chile, which is the, the expression of the, the kind of uh, autonomy of the indigenous nations um, there. So these things um, are kind of um, compare, make it a kind of useful comparable case and, and an opportunity for, for internationalist kind of solidarity, I think. Um, but what, where I think the lesson we can draw from from this year is, like you say, the ways in which the things that were kind of um, deployed to ensure the kind of failure or how this this mm -hmm. failure um, occurred. And so, whilst um, we argue in our text that that Maori sovereignty is um, the primary kind of injustice, so it's the it's it's the logically prior the thing that that needs to be struggled for first, so that Maori struggle. From there, with with our own autonomy, you know, not not under another kind of um, power, but but then uh, this doesn't kind of let us off the hook from a from a um, struggle against capital, because the ways in which um, these kind of twin twin pincers or whatever one is disciplining by by capital capital flight and so on, the way in which. Um, the state can be the state is reliant on on kind of the revenue it it draws from um, capitalist accumulation, and and it's sort of there to to um, ensure the kind of future prospects of this capitalist accumulation. It relies for its legitimacy on on this. So if this is threatened, um, then then you you're likely to get a, a kind of reactionary um, shift. The imposed sort of by capital and the other thing that goes alongside that is this kind of ascendant um, anti-Māori kind of populism that will be drummed up and and doesn't certainly isn't isn't solely kind of imposed from above there's plenty of um, basis for it kind of from below but the, uh, I know in Chile it was sort of um, spread that, that uh, plurinationalism would kind of mean you weren't allowed to own your house anymore, your house would be taken off you and stuff, and, oh, and certainly yeah, yeah. this wasn't in the constitution, but you can kind of imagine uh, the ways in which, I mean, already now um, there's you get this kind of argument that Māori think they're, they're more equal than everyone else or kind of like this this exceptionalist that Māori sometimes somehow gets special treatment and all this, despite, you know, this is again this kind of settler fantasy of reversal. They're they're, yeah. they're yeah. the ones that are persecuted. They're the ones with you know these these uh, horrible statistics and stuff, such as Awatiri mentioned. So it's trying to to understand um, just just have a clear view of of the kind of struggle ahead. I guess is what what Chile helps us kind of do. Yeah, they they live in fear that that someone might do to them what they've done, right? That's like yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah. worst. Their worst fear is like, and like even even the mention of it is like a, a, some form of like abuse to them. Like, mm. um, <laughs> so okay. So last question because we've kept you from your from your day. <laughs> Sorry, my 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 my. My mind is not computing the uh, time zone thing, but but um, you guys have yeah, you guys are gonna go have lunch soon or something. I think. Um, so last question is basically just like because you have your text and we have Donna Awatere's text, it's like what what is it that you know ultimately it's about sovereignty and it's like what do you what do you guys feel like needs to be updated 
you know, clearly we need to go back to that text and we need, we need that text, but like, what is it that, um, you know, besides the fact that there's less worship of Britain, <laughs> uh, what else needs to be updated uh, for us to, for us to, you know. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, that, that um, move away from the UK that is happening nationally uh, is also important in terms of thinking about where it is that Māori um, should be looking for support um, in this movement. And gosh, with this pivot to Asia that we're seeing from the US um, and the just the geopolitical power dynamics in the world right now, in some ways, should compel us to rethink our alliances, especially as Māori, and if we think about the context when Awatiri was writing, that was kind of at the tail end of the, or sorry, in the, in the at, at the peak um, part of the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement, which might not be that well known around the world, but it was actually um, hugely significant in this part of the world and actually posed a massive challenge to US imperialism that we're only actually beginning to fully understand now because documents are being declassified showing that um, just how much the the US cared about um, having dominance in that that area um, like most places but um, but there was a real strength that we had that we could draw on because our our place in this part of the world, our understanding of you know if, if we, even if we think of like you know the way that the West thinks about claiming territories and, and ownership and those types of things well mm -hmm. our claim to sovereignty is pretty hard to dispute in this part of the world um, and although we've been divided from one another through these different imperial regimes um, that is the source of of our power that is where our future lies in my view and so with the discussions um, that are happening at the moment uh, our decision makers are some of them are very keen to get involved with AUKUS I see you you are thinking about some new nuclear submarines and it kind of reminded me of your episode in civilizations talking about the German and UK um the water or oh, the, the arms yeah. race with the yeah, yeah the dreadnoughts um well unfortunately yeah it's just very similar now and instead of being sucked into these types of old world alliances we should be thinking about how that shift in power actually provides an opportunity where we might be able to get some massive change in Aotearoa without just then being soft cooed by the US if we have this other kind of balance um, that might be able to um, secure our ability to have sovereignty in the way that we wish to express it. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's amazing. There's a kind of... Um, you know, I mean, I read this book as a as a younger man, and it kind of you know set set my head on kind of fire. It's this blistering kind of text. It was a, a massive kind of eye opener. But then, subsequently, came across a um, a, a criticism of it by uh, uh, Evan Poeta Smith, Māori um, sociologist, and he takes this this sort of line. Um, that this is a, he uses a distinction from from some of the, the Black Panthers between cultural um, revolution and um, political revolution. I think I'm trying to remember, but for for him, the struggle against um, race and and colonialism and capitalism as a as a double thing, this kind of um, mm -hmm. falls apart and is replaced by this more cultural um, nationalism and this this empty sort of critique of white culture in in Awatiri's text. 
and I think maybe there's there's in some ways um, this gets at something, but still sort of misses mm -hmm. the point. Like I think we've we found in the in the process of writing this that actually Awatiri's notion of white culture is a more expansive thing to to get at this double double movement itself. But but I do think probably we have a language now, um, you know, via um, thinkers like uh, Cedric Robinson and and so on of um, of racial capitalism that we can probably be more specific in the operations of, of what we're talking about now. And um, yeah, I guess part of that is this um, historical production of, of whiteness as this category that it, it defines itself through exclusion of others, this inherent kind of violence um, to it. So I think there's the possibility, even this, this tiny little glimmer that Pākehā has as, um, as a as a term for, for for something that might become a kind of relation relational kind of identity that is much healthier than than whiteness um, mm -hmm. here, but involves this dismantling of the infrastructure of, of whiteness is kind of um, the way it, it operates to secure kind of um, privilege and fix racial hierarchies in, in place. I think so. This this is part part of the task, um, but the. Moana Jackson, who's one of the, the kind of rangatira of uh, uh, the struggle for, for constitutional transformation, I think he outlines a, a pretty uh, kind of healing healing vision, uh, which he terms a kind of ethic of, of restoration. We can think that the Tao Māori, the Māori world, isn't um, hasn't been destroyed or, or vanished or anything. It's, it's still there. It expresses itself through the whenua, through, through the land. And and it's but it's blocked. It's blocked by these other things. So so an ethic of restoration is really allowing for for the full expression of of te ao Māori again. Um, and I think this is um, you know this is this is something that's that uh, is is healing for for both sides, and that it, it it will reduce this kind of violence inherent to to whiteness that is damaging to white people uh, as well. Wow. I think that was a really good panel. Um, thank you so much. So Simon Barber, um, we had Gabriella uh, Brain and uh, Arama Rata. Thank you. You you basically set all this up. So thank you, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, uh, Justin. It's nice to nice to meet you and, and cool to get to hang out and chat.